Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Um, about 12 years ago, when Trish and I had our first child, uh, we thought to ourselves, you know what, we should really put a will together. And so over the past 12 years, you know, life gets busy, we forget, we look into it, it's expensive, and then we forget, and then life gets busy, and it's expensive, and then people come, and they're like, you don't have your will yet? And there's like this condemnation shame that comes over you of, no, I haven't done it yet. Maybe you felt that. Well, this year, we got her done. Uh, It took us 12 years, but we finally got our will completed. And we met with uh, this wonderful uh, lady, Carissa's her name. If you need someone, come talk to me. I'd love to share her info with you. But um, we met together one time. Uh, There were two meetings. The first time we met together, basically, uh, she wanted to know if we went to go be with Jesus, who would get all our stuff, who would get our children, who would get our money, all of those things. And so we walked through all of that and answered all her questions. And then about a month later, after she put all the paperwork together, she walked through everything that we talked about that she had documented and put in legal format. And so she gave us two binders. This is one of them. And we met and she just started walking through it. And so the, the, the first tab is, is the will. Um, and so we talked about that. And then durable power of attorney, whatever that means. I don't know. She knows, which is good. Um, healthcare powers, uh, memorial instructions, personal effects, property agreement. And so she walks through all of this stuff. And for Trish and I, it's fairly academic. It's kind of clinical. It's not super emotional. We've talked about these things before. And so, um, so it goes fine. But then she gets to the tab of other. And what she says is this other tab is where you put the letters to your children. <laughs> all of a sudden, it got very emotional. And Trish and I talked afterwards, and we were in agreement that after she shared that one little line, um, our, our mind was scattered. We had trouble focusing because we thought and considered, what would we write in this letter to our children if we were to go and be with Jesus? Let me ask you, what would you put in that other tab? What, what, what letters would you put in there? Who would you write to? What would you say to those that you love most if you went to go be with Jesus? My guess is that you and I would not talk about the weather. We wouldn't talk about sports or some cool new shoes that we just bought. We would talk about the most weighty matters in life. We would talk about the most important things in life. I know for me, and I I think many of you would do the same, I would tell my children how much I love them, how proud I am of them, how much God loves them, how precious God's love is to me and to them. 
I'd share my aspirations for their life to pursue Jesus above all else, to marry a godly spouse, to raise godly children, to shine forth the glory of God. And certainly in there, I would put the hope of heaven that one day we would be together for all eternity in the presence of Jesus. Last words are a big deal. They are weighty. They are not frivolous. Today's passage starts what scholars have called the farewell discourse of Jesus, in which he communicates his final words. This is his other section in which he's communicating that which is most valuable to him and should be most valuable to us. If you would please open up to John chapter 13. Uh, we'll be reading verses 31 through 36 today. It's page 900 in the Red Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. Um, page 900 there. If you remember, Jesus and the disciples are celebrating the Passover meal, which has been called the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. Jesus has just humbled himself to show what true greatness is, to become a servant, to wash the disciples' feet. And then Jude, Jesus sends Judas off to start in motion the gears for his betrayal and crucifixion. And so Jesus in this passage is now alone with his 11 apostles. And he takes this intimate opportunity to give these final words to those who are closest to him. And again, Jesus doesn't talk about the weather or a sports team or a new pair of sandals, but he communicates that which is most precious in life. And so we receive these words today as precious for us as they reveal the heart of our Savior. So you can follow along as I read out loud. John 13, verse 31 through 36. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterward. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, it, <laughs> it feels like we're walking on holy ground as we enter into this farewell discourse. As, as you, Jesus, communicate those things which are most important, most precious in life. Lord, I pray that we would, we would receive this 
with all seriousness and all awe and all joy, knowing that you, the God-man, has spoken to your people and given to us that which is for our good. And may we receive it with open hearts and open lives and open eyes and open ears that we might learn and know and do as you command. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you ever have had a loved one die, especially one that is younger in the prime of life, you have probably been struck with many questions, many frustrations, many angers, even a lot of confusion. You may have wondered about the goodness of God's plan or where God is in all of this. You may be overwhelmed with grief. It can even make life for a time feel purposeless or directionless or hopeless. During the Last Supper, if the disciples understood what was going to happen, they probably felt a lot of these emotions, but we know for sure they would have felt these emotions after the cross. And so Jesus here is preparing them for that day. And the same words that Jesus uses to comfort and to inspire and to challenge his apostles in that upper room are the same words that comfort and challenge and inspire us today. With death approaching, Jesus fills out the other tab. Today we read how Jesus begins his farewell discourse. And in it, Jesus gives not only his apostles, but all his disciples, both then and now, a focus a God-glory focus. He gives them a future certain hope, and he gives them a new old charge. And so that's what we're going to look at today as Jesus starts this farewell discourse. First off, Jesus gives them a God-glory focus. We're going to camp out on this first point here for a while because I think it really lays the foundation for all of the farewell discourse. Verse 31, we read that when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You know, one of the things I love about Jesus is that Jesus is not always answering the question that the disciples have, but he's answering the question the disciples should have. Jesus is setting their focus on that which is most important in all of creation, which is the glory of God. The word glory appears five times in different forms just here in these first two verses of Jesus' farewell discourse. And what it reminds us is that the glory of God is of primary importance to Jesus and to all of creation. And so Jesus is focusing his disciples on that end, on the end of the glory of God. Now, what does it mean for God to be glorified? That's a term that we use a lot, I think, especially in our circles. What does it mean for God to receive glory? You know, glory is actually a pretty difficult word to define because it is so encompassing. But for the sake of today, let me just illustrate. 
and I think help us understand what glory means. A couple of weeks ago, my family went on vacation up to the UP to Picture Rocks National Lakeshore in Munising, Michigan. Maybe you've been there before, but the highlight of the trip was this nine-mile hike that we did. And on this hike, we went and we saw this beautiful waterfall that was awe-inspiring. I remember turning to Trish and saying, this is literally just water falling. Like, that's all that's happening. Water is just falling. And why is it so awe-inspiring? I don't know, but it's amazing. And then we continue to hike out and we get to this place called Chapel Rock and there's this rock kind of set apart into Lake Superior and there's a tree on it and the roots cross over midair into the mainland and dig into the ground. We keep hiking and there's beautiful beaches and and then there's awesome cliffs and these rock bridges and turquoise blue water and then we get to the final beach which is called Mosquito Beach and there's these layers of rock built on top of each other and it is glorious. And you stop and you, and you ooh and you ah and you take way too many pictures because it is glorious. Now, now why is it glorious? Because it is beautiful, because it is majestic, because it is awesome. God is glorious because he is awe-inspiring. God is glorious because he is beautiful, because he is majestic, because he is awesome. And creation reflects the glory of God. Let me take the illustration just one step further. All of those items at Picture Rocks National Lakeshore are glorious in the daytime, but they are also glorious at nighttime. It isn't just like the cliffs turn off their glory at night or the waterfall shuts off at night and there's no more glory there. The glory is there as much at night as it is there in the daytime, but we can see the glory in the daytime because of the sun. The sun reveals the glory of God, the glory of his creation. It's there all the time, but we see it when light shines upon it. The Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, was glorious before the creation of the world. He is glorious from eternity past to eternity future, whether we see that glory or not. But here's what the cross of Christ does. The cross of Christ shines light on the glory of God. It displays the glory of God for the world around us. So that when we look to the cross of Christ, we see the glory of Christ, the glory of Father, and the glory of God swells and balloons in our heart and in our life and leads us to overflowing joy in the glory of the cross. You know, here in verse 31 and 32, there's tricky language, a lot of pronouns, and, and it's tricky, but, but more or less it's saying that the cross glorifies Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, And it glorifies the Father. Now, how is this? How is it that the cross glorifies, shows the beauty, the majesty, the awesomeness of Jesus? When you think about it, it actually almost seems counterintuitive. When I was... uh, probably, I don't know, 15 years ago, I remember The Passion of the Christ came out. You may remember that. And I remember going to the movie theater with, uh, with my family and with some friends, and we went in there, and we spent a lot of the movie just kind of doing this because we couldn't watch it. We couldn't stomach what was happening. And that's the big critique of the movie is that it's just too gory. 
Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you remember this. I mean, afterwards, we were just silent. We were sick to our stomachs. None of us said, hey, let's go out to eat. I mean, eating was, uh, our stomachs were just turning over. That was in 2D. (laughs) Imagine if you sat at the foot of the cross. Imagine if you were looking up to Jesus. Imagine if you saw him there bleeding and suffocating and gasping for breath. The last thing that would go through your mind at that moment would be glory. You would not think, this is glorious. What would go through your mind would be, where can I throw up? That's what would be going through you because it was so repulsive. And yet Jesus gives this great word of encouragement that at the cross, he will be glorified. The Father will be glorified. How is it that Christ can be glorified at this sickening, repulsive cross? See, the cross reveals the glory of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the majesty of Jesus, the awesomeness of Jesus. Because at the cross, Jesus voluntarily, out of love for his church, out of his love for you, Jesus voluntarily, to the greatest extreme, gave up his beauty. He had the flesh ripped from his back, beard pulled from his face, looked beyond recognition. Jesus voluntarily gave up his majesty. He was naked and put up for all to see, exposed, spat upon. Jesus voluntarily gave up his awesomeness. He died, pinned to the cross for all to mock. Friends, Christ was glorified on the cross because at the cross, Christ laid down his glory for you and me. What about the Father? How is the Father glorified in the cross? Well, there are, there are many, many, many ways. Uh, it reveals his holiness, his justice, his mercy, his grace. But keeping in line with what we see, the glory of Jesus, I think it also reveals the love of a father. You know, several, well, I guess it was last year in April, my son Cooper was coming down a zip line in our backyard and he fell off and Trisha called me and She's asking what she should do, and I can hear Cooper screaming in the background like I've never heard him scream before, screaming hysterically, and my heart sank, and, and so they went to the hospital, and I went home to be with the kids, and my daughter, Krista, took a picture in the hospital. I think we may have a picture of it. There it is. There's Cooper just exhausted from screaming and from crying and from the pain, and as I look at this picture, what goes through my heart is what I think goes through every parent's heart of man, I I wish I could take his place. Like, I wish I could have the broken wrist. I wish I could could just heal him automatically. I wish I could take it away. I I don't like seeing my children suffer. It causes me deep pain. Friends, if I, a a, a self-centered father, feel this way towards my son who broke his wrist, how much more do you think a perfectly heavenly father felt this way towards his son who had, again, the flesh ripped off his back, his beard plucked out, thorns hammered into his head, who was mocked and spat upon, suffocated on the cross. What do you think was going through the Father's heart at this time? Unbearable pain. 
You know, if I could have stopped my son, Cooper, from breaking his wrist, I would have done it in a heartbeat. But I don't have that power. But God the Father does. God the Father could have sent legions of angels to bring Christ off the cross. He could have prevented the whole thing from happening. But he didn't. The Father suffered through the cross because of his love for you. My friend Dick Buchler often reminds me that it was not the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was love. His love for his church, his love for you. The cross displayed God's glory in so many ways. We wouldn't have time to to dive into them all. But I believe the cross most displayed God's glory in that it revealed God's love for you and for me. And so friends, where is your focus in in times of sadness and in good times at work, at home, and play? Jesus begins his farewell discourse by focusing us on the glory of God revealed most wonderfully at the cross of Christ by demonstrating God's great love for you. Jesus continues his farewell address by assuring his disciples of a future certain hope. Again, Jesus knows the pain and the confusion they are experiencing and will experience. And so tenderly he comes to his disciples and he says this in verse 33. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. You know, on many occasions, Jesus alluded to his death. The disciples took the ostrich approach. You know that approach? Just stick your head in the sand, pretend like you didn't hear that. Move on with life. Jesus knows, though, that it's coming. He wants his apostles to be prepared as much as possible. And so Jesus comes to them compassionately, telling them that he's going away. But he doesn't leave them there hanging in that moment. If you look forward to verse 36, we read this. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, giving them clarification and hope. He says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But you will. That's a promise. That's hope. You will follow afterward. You know, the word hope isn't found in this passage, but certainly this is what Jesus is giving to them when he does say you will follow afterwards. Jesus is giving the apostles hope. Now, the way that the world uses this word hope and the way we use the word hope or the way the Bible uses hope are two very different ways. Both of them are are kind of looking forward to an optimistic future. But when the world uses the word hope, it uses it in terms of like wishful thinking. You know, like I hope the Packers win today. We don't know if that's going to happen, but it's kind of wishful thinking. But the Bible uses hope as a very definite or certain thing that is to come, a future in which it will be glorious. As we see in this passage, Jesus says, you will, you will, this is our great hope, you will follow afterward. Now the conversation in this, the apostles are still left with big questions and Peter blurts them out. Like, Jesus, where are you going? 
And, and why can't we follow you yet? And, and I think the answer to this question is kind of twofold. It's hard to parse it exactly, but there are two different occasions where Jesus leaves the disciples, and, and maybe Jesus is referring to both or to the second, I'm not sure. But, but the first time Jesus leaves them is when he goes to the cross. And when Jesus goes to the cross, they cannot follow him because this is not their mission. This is Jesus' mission. Jesus is the only Lamb of God who can take away the sins of the world. And so this is only for him to go. And yet we know that his disciples will follow him in martyrdom. John 21 Near the end of the book, after Jesus restores Peter, Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Kind of cryptic, confusing language, but then John adds this commentary to help us understand. This he said to show by what kind of death He was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. That's so interesting that Jesus ends with follow me because back in John 13, he says, you cannot follow me yet. Jesus is telling Peter that he will die on a cross. Matter of fact, all the apostles were martyred for their faith except Judas who took his own life and John who they tried to kill many times and he just kept going on. So he could write the book of Revelations. But they were martyred for their faith. And so, yes, they would follow Jesus eventually. And so that's one thing that Jesus probably meant by, I'm going someplace you cannot go yet, but you will come after. The second is more glorious. The second way the disciples could not follow Jesus yet is kind of uncovered more in the next chapter. If you just look a few verses forward into John 14, verse 2. Certainly a part of this farewell address, a part of this conversation, Jesus says this, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus would leave the apostles once again after his resurrection, 40 days after, when he ascended into heaven. And when Jesus ascends into heaven, they could not follow him yet. Not only because they needed to go and fulfill the Great Commission, but also because Jesus was going to prepare a place for them. You know, I think of this kind of like Christmas in my house growing up. I remember I was the youngest of five kids, and we would wake up super early because we were excited, and we'd have to sit at the top of the steps, and my dad would wake up uh, also early, but not as early as us, and he kind of, you know, walked through us to get down the stairs, and mom would walk through us to get down the stairs, and they would go downstairs to prepare for the celebration. He'd get all the, you know, Christmas stuff in order. She'd start cooking breakfast and things like that. They were preparing for us to come down and to enjoy the celebration. Jesus goes to prepare a place for us. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into this because we'll cover it next week. But notice in this farewell address, Jesus is giving the disciples hope. Not a wishy-washy worldly hope, but a certain hope that although they will be separated from Jesus for a time, they will be with him for all eternity. Even though they will go through suffering and through martyrdom and even some through crucifixion, they will be with Jesus forever. This is a certain hope. You know, it's, it's hard to think of illustrations for certain hope. I really just have one that, that makes sense to me. On Friday night, 
uh, my family was really busy with birthday parties going and, and planning and things like that. And so uh, I, I DVR, do you know what that, that's like a digital video recording, I think, of, uh, of the Bucks game. All right. I, I, we went to a Bucks game last year and now we love watching the Bucks. And so we DVR'd the Bucks game. We got the kids to bed and afterwards I'm, I'm thinking, oh man, I want to see what happened. Well, by chance I was looking at my phone and I found out beforehand the Bucks win by 30, okay? So I'm like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch it anyway. So there I am, I'm watching the game, and, you know, there are times where they're just missing every shot. They're throwing the ball out of bounds. They're having silly fouls. Sometimes the T-Wolves who they're playing are, are catching back up to them, and it looks like they're going to threaten them. Now, if I'm watching this in live time, like, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm freaking out a little bit. But I already knew what the final score was going to be. And so when they turn the ball over, when they make a silly bonehead play, it's like, it's okay. I know who wins. I know who wins decisively. I had a certain fixed hope because I knew how the end of the game would end. Friends, we have a certain hope because we know who is victorious. It was proclaimed to us at the resurrection. And it's confirmed what our end will be at the ascension into heaven. We know how the game ends. Amen? Amen. Amen. And because of that, we have a certain hope. And as we go through life, we'll make dumb plays. There will be times where it feels like we're losing. There will be times where it's crazy and chaotic. And we'll think, oh, why did I do that? Lord, why is this happening? But we have this certain hope. We know how it ends. We know our king reigns victorious forever and we will be with him for all eternity. Jesus gives us certain hope in the midst of his farewell address. And so again, he focuses us on the glory of God revealed at the cross. He promises this future certain hope of heaven to encourage us in the midst of the suffering that is to come. And then finally, Jesus gives us this old, new charge, or an old, new commandment. Verse 34, you can look there. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, what's so interesting about this statement is that Jesus calls it a new commandment, but in many ways, it's not a new commandment at all. It's a very old commandment. You may remember when a scribe comes to Jesus in order to examine Jesus, and the scribe says to Jesus, which commandment that in the Old Testament is the most important of all? And Jesus answered him, he says, the most important is that you love the Lord your God, And the second is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe, the scribe, the Jewish scribe says this. He says, you are right, teacher. To love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so Jesus knew, the scribes knew, the Jewish community knew That there is this law that we are called to love our neighbor. That we must love God and then love others. This commandment and charge from God has been there for over a millennium. And yet Jesus says, I come to you with a new commandment. 
And so how is this commandment new? Well, I think there are, are many ways, but there are three that are really focused here in this passage. So I want to look at the three ways just in this passage that we see this command to love is new. First, there is a new priority of love. In the Old Testament, the command was to love neighbor, to love countrymen, to love sojourners, to love orphans, to love widows, to love aliens. Certainly, we are called to that same love today, but Jesus gives us a priority in love. Verse 34, again, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. That is the priority, that we love one another. Now, in the context, of course, Jesus is talking amongst the apostles. But as we look further, what we see is that this is related to the church as a whole. John Piper was very helpful. He pointed out, like, the book of 1 John is all an expansion on these two verses here in verse 34 and 35. And so in 1 John 4, which is John writing this, who was at that final meal, John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also want to love one another. That is the church. Again, God isn't saying that we shouldn't love all people at all times. But remember, we are not God. God knows us. We have limited bandwidth, right? And so how do we prioritize our love? God has told us that we are to love one another, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as of top priority. You know, thinking even of our congregation here, what does this look like? Well, I think it starts with the people God has providentially put in our life to love those in our small groups and to love the Church of Jacob's Well and then to love the Church of Green Bay and out to the end of the world. I mean, even today, you've had opportunities of here to hear how you can love one another. I mean, loving isn't just this, this warm, squishy feeling, emotion in your heart. Love takes action. It, it gets involved in people's lives. I mean, we had this volunteer sign-up, you know, of if you want to love the church, like, like we need children's church teachers. You may say, well, then I'd have to stay for two services. Yeah, you would. Uh, I'm not particularly excited about that. It's okay. This is a way to love your church, to serve your church. Operation Christmas Child, I don't know those people. That's okay. It's a way to love the church universal. God calls us to love one another. That is the new priority of love. And then he gives us a new quality of love. Verse 34, Jesus again says, A new commandment I give to you that you love who? One another. And then here's the new quality. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We, we drilled deep into the love of Christ earlier in our first point, sharing about how it was love that held him to the cross. But I want to read a few more verses from John that talk about the love of Christ. At the beginning of this chapter, John 13, he says, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John 15, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Sounds a lot like what we just read in John 13. But then he defines what this love looks like, how he has loved us. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That is sacrificial love. And then Romans 5 says, 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God, the Trinitarian God, demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And so as we are told of this new quality of love, that we are to love as Jesus has loved us, what this tells us is that we are to love one another to the very end, that we don't give up on one another, that we are to love one another at great sacrifice to ourselves, that we are to love one another even when the other person is stuck in their sin. We are to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And so we have the new priority love, to love the church the new quality of love, to love sacrificially as Christ has loved us, and finally, a new identity of love. Look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you vote for a certain political party in the upcoming election. Is that right? Nope. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples If you tell people you've been born again, no. By this you will know, people will know that you're my disciples. If you have a Christian bumper sticker, what does it say? By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In the Old Testament, the people of God were identified because they wore funny clothes They had crazy diets. They had unique worship rituals. In the Gospels, the disciples of Jesus are identified because literally they physically followed him from town to town to town to town. You can tell. There's Jesus' disciples. They're walking with him. How do we identify the disciples of Jesus today? How do we know if we are a disciple of Jesus? If we love one another. As I mentioned, 1 John is basically just an explosion. If you want to look at these two verses, just 1 John is an explosion of these verses. Let me just read you a little bit about what it says about how we should love one another. 1 John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. It continues and says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not know, he does not love his brother whom he has seen. He cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, before I was a Christian, I started going to this group called Young Life. You've probably heard a lot about it. We've talked a lot about it. And I just remember how drastically different this culture was. You see, in the, in the high school culture that I grew up in, uh, we made fun of each other. We would ridicule each other. We were very sarcastic towards one another. We would say hurtful things. Basically, we'd blow out their candle to make ours shine brighter. We'd try to show people up, things like that. But then I stepped into this Christian community, and the way people loved one another was just, it was mind-blowing. The way that they were encouraging to one another, building one another up, not tearing one another down, was something different than I'd ever seen before in my life. 
And it was by that love for one another that I knew there was something different. I knew them by their love. Friends, the way we love one another should be so unique, so sacrificial, so joyful, so wonderful that the world would look and say, what is it about those people? Look how they love one another. I've said this before, but it's something that we can always hear again, that we can only love one another to the degree that we have received love from another. And Christians, we have received the greatest love of all, the love of God in Jesus Christ. And because we have received that love, we can now love to that extent. So Jesus charges us to this love that is new, with a new priority of brothers and sisters in Christ, with a new quality to be sacrificial like Christ, and with a new identity that we will be known by our love. Let me end with this. I, I started by asking you, you know, what would you write in a farewell letter? Well, let's turn the tables on that illustration. Let me ask you, what would you do if you received a farewell letter from someone that you loved? Uh, my family watches America's Got Town. It just ended, but there was a comedian with Tourette's Syndrome, and he shared a story of how his mom died of cancer a few years prior, and she wrote him a final letter. And uh, he read it for the camera. Um, it, it told him to live boldly, to live out his dreams. He said it had inspired him. And the, the reporter or commentator, whatever they're called, said, how often do you read this letter? And he responded, just about every day. Friends, over the next months, as we study through John chapter 17, we get to dive deep into Jesus' farewell letter to us, his farewell discourse to us, his love letter to us. And I can't wait to dive deeper. But this is an amazing start, isn't it? To a farewell discourse. This passage is to inspire us today, not, not till we get to chapter 17, but to inspire us and direct us and to radically change the way we live today, that we would live with a God-glory focus, that we would live with a future certain hope, even in the midst of hardships, and that we would fulfill this new old commandment to love one another as Christ has loved us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for tenderly loving your apostles and tenderly loving us to leave us this farewell discourse that we might know what is precious to you, that it might become precious to us. And so we may, may we live to that end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.